turn me back on now. There we go. <laughs> well, how's everybody doing? I'm great. All right. There's no Exodus today, as you know. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Revelation chapter 12. I had a quiz for the Revelation people that we were going to do at the beginning of class, but because of all of the confusion, that just means we're going to do it at the end of class, okay? So I know y'all don't think you're in school, but you are. This is a midterm, okay? We're halfway through the book of Revelation, and so we're going to do a quiz at the end of the class. I think there's 15 questions on it. I want to encourage you with what you already know, and hopefully you'll be able to appreciate the fact that you've learned a lot, but these 15 questions, they're all multiple choice and true and false. If you fail the quiz... We are calling your parents for a teacher-parent conference, but hopefully everybody will do good. All right, if you got your Bible, Revelation 12 is where we're going to be today. As I said, we're halfway through the book of Revelation. We've studied the first 11 chapters. This is the last Sunday of the quarter, but the uh, class on Revelation will run through next quarter for those who want to continue, and we'll do 13 through 22. We're right where we want it to be as far as what we wanted to cover up to this point. Um, chapter 12 can rightly be called a transition chapter in the book of Revelation. When you open up to Revelation 12, you run into some different things than what you've seen before. Up to this point in the book of Revelation, what you found is the church being persecuted, God's wrath being poured out on the persecutors. But in Revelation chapter 12, as well as chapter 13, you get some of the key figures behind the persecution introduced. And John's going to tell us who some of these folks are and what their what their position is. The second half of the book deals with the behind the scenes conflict of the cosmic battle taking place. So there's this worldly influence the Romans and persecuting Christians but Revelation chapter 12 tells us what's going on in heaven and what's kind of causing some of this that we see going on on earth and John introduces us to some of the key players I think this section especially this chapter is of eternal value people typically have several views of the world in which we live most people view their lives as just happening things are just happening to them and Whatever happens, happens. It's the fatalistic kind of stoic mindset. And it's an incorrect view to view your life only from the standpoint of human affairs. But then there are other people that only view their life from the divine standpoint. They only view their life as God's involved. God's blessing me. God's doing all these things without any regard for Satan and what he is doing and is capable of doing. And then there's a third category of folks that don't think about the divine. They see natural disasters. They see sin in the world. They see catastrophe. And they view their lives purely from the standpoint of the devil's running the show and everything that's happening is at his will. God's either asleep at the wheel in a kind of deistic view or God's totally detached. Revelation 12 says we need a combination of those views. The devil is involved. He does do things in our world. But God is also involved. And more than that, God is sovereign and in complete control. And we need to see our lives from that vantage point and make sure our, our worldview is biblical and we see things the way God wants us to. So this chapter and the one that follows will challenge much of what we think about heaven, hell, the devil, his involvement in the world, and it'll help us to dig into it. And we'll find out, I think, that a lot of what we even think about the devil and where he came from and how he got to the place where he is now may be more of a kind of Hollywood view than it is a biblical view. We may have gotten more from Milton's Paradise Lost than we've gotten from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And hopefully we'll see what does the Bible say about the devil, his role and all that. And here's the last thing about chapter 12. This chapter helps us to better understand what Paul was saying. Neil preached on this. Um, last Sunday, he mentioned some of this, but there was another lesson on the Holy Spirit a few months ago. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the spiritual warfare we're engaged in in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12, 
and this chapter helps us to zero in on some of what all of that's about. And John, from this point forward in the book of Revelation, will deal with stark contrast. Just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There's two trees, two ways, two houses. John's going to talk about two women, the woman of Babylon, the woman from Jerusalem. There are two places, in the book of life or out of the book of life. There are two destinies, and everybody in the world is in one of those two camps. There's nobody neutral. There's nobody just marginal in spiritual things. We're in either one of those two camps, and John's going to help us with that. Okay, so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through one through six or yeah, let's do one through six and one chunk here. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and agony and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven and behold, there was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven And cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and which is to which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. All right. Let's see. Ah, I got my PowerPoint this time, so no cheating on the notes. All right. So here we go. John sees a sign in heaven. That's Revelation 12 and verse one. We'll just take the first two verses. First thing John says is he sees a sign based on what John says. This was a sign in heaven. But when you keep reading, John says he sees a sign in heaven. And this is more about like sun, moon, stars, what the Jews viewed as the heavens right above us. This isn't literally the throne room of God because there are sun, moon, and stars at this woman's feet. Furthermore, John's terminology is symbolic. So John sees this as a part of a vision. And then who does John see and what does he tell us about who he sees in verse 2? What do you see there? Or 1 and 2. Who does John see when he has this sign that appears in heaven? He sees a woman. Okay, that's great. That's a good place to start, Andy. We've got a woman. All right, what else? She's... She's pregnant. Okay. What else? Clothed with the sun. Thanks. Moon under her feet. And what kind of circumstances is she in as far as how she feels? Yeah, she's crying out. So we don't know anything about the duration, but she's like eight months pregnant based on that. Right. She's ready to be done with this. Okay, so she's pregnant. Here we go. So John tells us these things. There's a woman clothed with the sun. This is about God's majesty. You see something like this in the Song of Solomon, chapter six and verse 10 and also Psalm 104 and verse two. Okay, that's showing up decent enough for you to see it. Um, The moon under her feet would probably deal with her dominion. That's Jeremiah 31, 35 and 36 as a reference for that. The crown. How many stars are on the head of this crown? And 12. What does the number 12 represent in the Bible? Divine. Divine covenant. Somebody else said it, I think. The people of God. Yeah, you've got how many tribes of Israel? 12. How many apostles? All right. So these 12 these 12 stars on the head of the crown, this is the Stephanos. It was the wreath that people won when they won the Olympic Games. It's the crown promised to people in James chapter one and verse 12. Um, She's crying out in pain. This probably has a reference to her persecution of some kind and then in labor and prepared to give birth. All right. So the next question is, obviously, who does this woman represent? Who do you think this woman is? 
Who is the woman? I was studying for this lesson, and I told her this morning, I was studying, I was going to say, one of the options is not Rachel, okay? So don't say her. But other than that, who is this woman? When in doubt, you say the church. Okay, here are some of the options people have come up with down through the years. Some people think it's Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. Given birth to a child, the devil wants to devour this child. Some people have said it's Mary. Some people have said it's the Jewish-based church in Jerusalem. So this church is representative of the Jews that meet in Jerusalem. Some people say it's ethnic Israel. It's the Jews as a whole, just the Jewish people. And then others say it's the true spiritual Israel, which is the church. Excuse me, the church that is representative of God's people of all time. Which one of those options looks like the best option to you? Robert said in view, when in doubt, say the church. Who do you believe it is? Okay, assuming that it's Mary as an individual. And there are some people that would strongly argue for Mary. And we only read the first six verses, but I think there are some things that follow that's going to say it couldn't be dealing with her specifically. On top of the fact it's highly symbolic literature. You look at the verses and it says things about the moon being under her feet, the crown of 12 stars. That would be placing a lot of emphasis on Mary and what she possesses. But I think it's a good guess, a good try. Neil, who did you say? Oh, you were going to say Mary, too? (laughs) Sorry. I don't know what he was going to say. Okay. Okay. Mary, I think, and I, listen, the Bible doesn't specifically say, we can disagree. The the rest of the chapter is going to say some things about this child that I think Mary's included in this number, but I think that what's taking place here is it's dealing with the people of God faithful, because remember, this woman is talked about before Jesus arrives, and then she's persecuted after Jesus's arrival and her offspring, he'll say in chapter 17. And so I think it's dealing with this idea of the true and spiritual Israel. Throughout the New Testament, after the church is born, she's not cut off from Old Testament Israel. The New Testament uses terminology to link the New Testament church with ancient Israel. So I think we start off talking about the people of God in the Old Covenant being persecuted by the devil because it's through that lineage that God's going to bring this woman in. Genesis 3.15, the woman's seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. But then I think that ultimately points forward to the church. The passages on the screen there, you look at Romans 2, 28 and 29. Paul says that the true Israel is the people of God. It's the New Testament Christians. And Galatians 6, 16 says the church is the Israel of God. And Philippians 3 and verse 3, Paul says we are the circumcision that are in Jesus Christ. So I think this woman is representative of ancient Israel that brought the Messiah into the world. But eventually she gives birth to Jesus and Everybody that's a member of the church, the kingdom of God is represented through who this woman is. But you can look at those options and make your own decision about that. She's preparing to give birth. And this has to do with the arrival of the promised child in the Old Testament. She represents the vehicle through whom the savior of the world will be brought. And so she's going to be the one to bring the savior into the world. I believe that's Mary physically, but nationally, that's Israel. And ultimately, as his offspring, I believe it's representative of the church. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. So anyway, um, it can. But and I think as you work your way down through chapter 12, Chuck does bring up a good point. It can have multiple meanings. When you work your way down through chapter 12, though, John's going to say some things that make it a little bit more crystal clear. As he said, like I said, in 13 and 17, for example, Andy said the Jews or Mary. And after the woman gives birth, she continues to be persecuted. I don't know if you could fit that hard fast with Mary continuing to be persecuted after she had given birth to Jesus. She fades off the scene except for John 19 at the cross and Acts 1:14 with the apostles. 
Israel, after the birth of Jesus, they're no longer persecuted. They're the persecutors as they persecute the New Testament church and Jesus during his earthly ministry. So I think the only viable option is the true spiritual Israel. They were involved in Jesus's conception and advent into the world and continue to be persecuted. Remember, at the time of the book of Revelation, what's going on with the Christians, with the Romans? They're being persecuted. Whatever John is talking about is going to have to deal with what these Christians in the seven churches were facing. And I think the only thing that brings it home for them is, hey, look, you're being persecuted. You are a part of this woman and God's going to protect you. But like Chuck mentioned, there can be layers to John's meaning. All right. All right. So let's look at the dragon and the child. Another sign appears in heaven. Look at verse three. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So another sign appears and John says that he saw a what? That looks really small to me, but maybe you can see that. Okay. What does John see in this second sign in Revelation 12, 3? A dragon. Yeah, this Greek word dracon, it sounds like dragon and we just kind of transliterated and bring it over into English. It's probably more like a serpent. The same word when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says Moses threw down his rod and it became a what? Serpent. Serpent, But it's this word, dracon. So we go with dragon in English. He didn't see a red fiery dragon like we think. He saw more like a red serpent. And that's what he sees. Check out Exodus 7, 9 and 10 on that. How is the dragon described or the serpent? We'll just go with dragon. But how is the dragon described? Okay, seven heads and ten horns. What does the number seven represent in the Bible? Somebody besides Andy? Completion, yes. What about the number ten? And a lot of times seven represents completion. It also represents divine, so you've got some of that. Completion, what about ten? Starts with P, ends with our? Power. There we go. Okay, there we go. So power, what else about the the dragon do we know? Seven diadems. What is he doing with his tail? Yeah, he's sweeping out a third of the stars. So you've got this dragon or this serpent and um, this terminology of the dragon, it appears throughout the Bible. Go to Psalm 74. Go to hold your head in Revelation 12 and we'll just notice a few of these and what this probably is alluding to. Psalm 74 and um, verse 14. Psalm 74, 14 is talking about God's punishing of his of Israel's enemies. And it says about God, you crushed the heads of Leviathan and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever flowing streams. That word Leviathan is the same word. It's a serpent. It's a dracon, a dragon of some sort. Look at Ezekiel 29. Go to Ezekiel 29 and notice verse three. This is about Pharaoh and about the Egyptians and The same idea is expressed about them. Ezekiel 29 and verse three says, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says my Nile is my own and I made it for myself. So throughout the Bible, wicked people and rulers are sometimes referred to as dragons. And whatever you do with the person at the end of Job or with the Leviathan or the dragon at the end of Job, could be dealing with a dinosaur or using a dinosaur to typify evil or to kind of be as a model for evil. But the same word is used there for this dragon type creature. And that's what John says he sees. Who does this dragon represent in Revelation 12? This isn't hard. This isn't a trick question. Everybody. 
Satan. All right. This is a good one. So Satan, the devil. That's right. So when the text tells us the dragon wants to devour the child, what does this tell us about the dragon's relationship or the devil's relationship to Jesus? It says he wants her to give birth. So immediately Revelation 12 and I believe it's verse five says, well, verse four, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. So if the child is Jesus and he is and the people of God are going to give birth to this woman, specifically Mary, but he's coming through the lineage of Israel. The devil wants to devour the child Jesus. What does this tell us about the devil's relationship to Jesus and to the people of God down through time? What does this tell you? He's an adversary. He's coming for us, but specifically in this context, he's coming for who? The child? Yep. What else? Yeah, wants to try to get rid of it. And it just teaches us as we read through the Bible, starting in Genesis and working your way through Revelation, the devil has always been about upending the plan of God. So when you read in Genesis chapter three, it's about upending the plan of God with Adam and Eve. You move forward. You think about the lineage of David about to be cut off in second Samuel, first Samuel, chapter 19 and verse one. The devil has always been about upending God's plans. This next quarter coming up, there are going to be several men teaching in the auditorium on Wednesday night on the book of Judges. And you just think about how Israel almost annihilates herself through wickedness. There was no king in Israel and every man did what? What was right in his own eyes, Judges 17, 6. The devil was all behind that and trying to get God's people to do things against the will of God. You don't read about the devil a bunch in the Old Testament. You've got him in Job chapter one. You've got him in Zechariah chapter three as the adversary. And once in First Chronicles 21, when he stirs up David to number the people, by and large, Israel's enemies are physical in the Old Testament. And so a lot of people have said, well, Israel didn't have a theology about the devil in the Old Testament. It's more a New Testament idea. This passage says they did. And God and the devil worked through those nations to try to upend God's plans. But he's always wanted to devour the child. Why does the devil want to devour this child? What's the purpose? That's right. The birth of the child signifies his demise. And if the child can get here, then his his plans are done. That's Genesis 3:15. It's the storyline of the whole Bible. When the devil enters the garden and gets Adam and Eve to succumb to temptation and to sin, God says, I'm heading toward Calvary. She's going to give birth to a woman. Series preaching the gospel. Okay, so um, (laughs) she's going to give birth to a woman. The woman's going to give birth to a son, and he will crush the head of the serpent. If you're the devil, you've got to be thinking. You hear that in Genesis 3.15. There's a seed coming to crush my head. If I can stop that seed from getting here, my head won't be severed and crushed. And that's what this is all about. He wants to devour the child and ruin God's plans. The woman gives birth to to a child. Who is the child, and how do we know it's referring to Jesus? Yeah, it says that this child will rule all nations. He's been given a rod of iron. Look at Revelation 12 and verse five. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth that he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Go to Psalm chapter two, because this is where John alludes to this rule with a rod of iron from Psalm chapter two is a messianic psalm. And what that means is. Is primarily about the work that Jesus would do. This was a favorite psalm in the first century church. Paul quotes it in Acts 13. The Hebrew writer uses it in Hebrews chapter one and in other places. But here we see it and it's referring to Jesus as far as what he was going to do when he came. So Psalm chapter two. Can we get somebody to read nice and loud? Verse seven, eight and nine. Those three verses. All right. So that's Jesus with the rod of iron. You know that verse seven says, this is my son. Today I've begotten you. Well, she gives birth to this child and he's going to rule the nations. The woman gives birth to a child before the child can be devoured by the adversary. What does John say happens to this child? It's caught up to heaven. When did that happen? 
the ascension. Yeah, it's a part of Jesus's whole ministry. She gives birth to the child. And before the devil can devour the child, he accomplishes everything God wants him to. And then he's caught up to heaven. So God is able to protect this child from destruction. What does this tell you about God's plans? And what does it tell you about the devil's plans? The devil's waiting to devour the child. She gives birth to the child. And John says, hey, before he could devour it, the child's caught up to heaven. What does this tell you about God's plans versus the devil's plans? God succeeds. The devil fails. Rachel, you said something more powerful. What else? What does this tell you about God's plans versus the devil's plans? The devil wants to devour the child. She gives birth. The child's caught up. What does it tell you? God's watching over him. Yep. God's always one step ahead. That's right. This same word for caught up is used about Christians in First Thessalonians 417. There'll be the trumpet. Oh, Daryl, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Go ahead. Okay, that is the point. (laughs) No, I was going to say that's a good point to bring up. I forgot that section. So we talked about the devil wanting to devour the child in the Old Testament, but it literally happens in the new. Right. Matthew 2, 16. The devil wants to literally destroy Jesus. And there are several times in Jesus's earthly ministry. If you read the Gospels, they want to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth and John and Luke chapter four and other little places where if Jesus dies prematurely, the scheme of redemption is unraveled. So Jesus not only has to come to earth and die, but he's got to die a specific way. He can't die at 90 years old in a nursing home, but he can't die prematurely at 17 either. There's about 400 messianic prophecies that he has to fulfill before he meets his earthly demise and ultimately rises from the dead. And so throughout his earthly ministry, as Daryl mentions, the devil is trying to devour him in various ways, one of which is immediately at his birth, literally devouring the child and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and then they come out. And so that's a part of this. But what we were mentioning a moment ago, and there was a comment about God always being a step ahead of the devil. It just tells us the devil's not omniscient. The devil doesn't know everything. And we'll say more about the devil in a minute. But just keep in mind, God's always one step ahead. And Jesus was caught up and we'll be caught up too. The devil pursues us. But the Bible says one day God's people are going to be caught up and he won't devour us. If you're in this, if you're in this woman section, if you're in the saved relationship with God, you're safe as well. And just because Jesus is caught up doesn't mean that he stopped ruling with the rod of iron. Just because Jesus is out of our sight doesn't mean he's no longer engaged in our fight, that he's not concerned about the things that concern us. He's caught up to heaven. He's scot free. Now that he's in heaven, he's watching over those who faithfully serve him. And just like the devil didn't get to devour the child, he won't let him devour us either. I think sometimes we get fooled by proximity and we think, well, because God's so far away from us in heaven. I mean, I can pray and God's involved in my life in some ways, but it's kind of all up to me here. And that's not true at all. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. He's in complete control and he won't let the enemy devour us. Verse six says, since the dragon couldn't harm the woman, he pursues the child. He couldn't harm the child. He pursues the woman. She's she flees to the wilderness, it says in verse six, and she has a place prepared. What do you know about the wilderness in the Bible? What do we know about the wilderness in the Bible? When you hear that, what do you think about? Children of Israel wander in the wilderness. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What else? John the Baptist in the wilderness. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 4, he's in the wilderness. What else? Moses in the wilderness. What do all of these places have? They're they're the wilderness. What do all of these scenes have in common? John, Jesus, Elijah, Israel, wilderness in the Bible, good or bad? 
kind of an escape. I think there are two ideas in the wilderness. One is in the wilderness, what happens to people in the wilderness? Testing. All right. There's normally testing in the wilderness. That's part one. And then what else happens to people in the wilderness a lot of times? There are miracles. They prepare for their work. And who prepares them? God. Throughout the Bible, the wilderness is the place where God prepares them. Chuck also said manna, which is true. It's about God's provision. So when you come across any passage in the Bible and you find wilderness, there'll normally be two ideas taking place. One, somebody's about to go through a period of testing, hopefully to make them better. And the second thing that's going to happen is God's going to be providing for them. And so this woman is taken into the wilderness. Somebody said initially, well, wilderness is bad. That's what we would think. But look at Revelation 12 and verse six. It says the woman fled into the wilderness. And then what's the next part of your Bible say in verse six? She has a place prepared by God who sent her to the wilderness. This is important for all of the reasons we mentioned before. Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. Neil's going to preach on that. We're going to leave that alone this morning. But it is to say that the wilderness experience is necessary in everybody's life. And when God sends you to the wilderness, beware of viewing it as a punishment. He's preparing you, but he's also providing for you. You think about the people in the Bible who were taken, and some of these aren't literally called a wilderness, but there were these periods of exile. God calls Saul of Tarsus to be an apostle. Acts is silent on this, but Paul tells us in Galatians 1, he was three years in Arabia, being prepared, being trained so that he could do the work God would have him to do. He needed it. Joseph was a good guy at 17 in Genesis chapter 37, but the Egyptian experience was necessary. Joseph had to go through those years of torture, 13 years of developing so that he could be groomed into the person that God would want him to be. And later, he's not a cocky, arrogant teenager telling his parents and brothers, you're going to bow before me. He's now forgiving them and saving the people of God. And by the way, helping the child to not be devoured and preserving Abraham's seed. David's going to be the king. He's anointed in 1 Samuel 16. He's not ready in that moment to be the king of God's people. The wilderness experience is necessary. He's got to go into the caves of En Gedi and be on the run from Saul and experience hardship and all those things so that when he gets to where God wants him to be, he'll be better prepared to serve in that capacity. In your life and in my life, there are wilderness experiences. We don't always like them, but here's the thing. We mentioned several. Who would you say failed the worst in their wilderness experience in the Bible? Who did the worst? This is easy. Israel. Why? Took him 40 years to make an 11th day journey. Sound like my family going out of town. No, but (laughs) no. But why? Why did they fail in the wilderness? They complained. They didn't trust God and they didn't what? They didn't see it as an opportunity to capitalize and grow and develop spiritually. If you spend your whole wilderness complaining, I don't know what your wilderness is, but if you go through the whole period, explain you miss the blessing. Oh, I wish my health was better right now. I wish I, why why does this have to be? Instead of accepting, listen, the wilderness is never to ruin. It's always to refine. And so if we're going through this and God's saying, hey, I want to make you better, it's for our betterment. You need to go through it. And as God's taking you through it, instead of saying, I can't wait to get out of here and be on the other side, start looking for signposts of blessings and saying, what is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning in this season of life right now? God's sovereign. And if God wanted me out of it, he could deliver me out in a moment's notice. But since he hasn't chosen to do that, I'm just going to ride it out with him as long as he wants me to. But along the way, I'm going to get every nugget, every blessing, every ounce of wisdom that I can squeeze out of this experience so that I can better serve him. Israel didn't do that. They complained about food and water. And when they got food, they didn't like that. They didn't want Moses as their leader. They can't take Canaan. Then they will take Canaan. They didn't learn their lesson. And a lot of times God sends us through the wilderness and we're supposed to come out more mature. We spend however long, five, ten years in this wilderness experience. We gain no maturity. 
for any of that time. We come out on the other side. And guess what we need after that? Because we didn't grow another wilderness experience. We haven't grown. We haven't learned the lesson. Israel's going. The church is going to go through this period. And by the way, how long is this going to happen at the end of verse six? One thousand two hundred and sixty days. Three and a half years, 42 months. Um, what does that stand for in the Bible? Not Andy. Twelve hundred and sixty days. We talked about this last time. What does that number stand for? A period of what? Wait. Somebody said waiting. Yes. Who else? I think I heard the right answer. I don't know who said it, though. Trial testing. So there's going to be this period of testing for the woman. Twelve hundred and sixty days. She's not going to be out there forever, but it's going to be necessary. God will eventually bring you out of the wilderness. But just wait your twelve hundred and sixty days, three and a half months, three and a half years, 42 months, times, time, time and a half. All of those phrases are meant to say it's a limited time. Just hold fast. Stay down. Don't give up. And God will bless you and bring you out. Okay, let's read seven through and we'll just do seven through the end of the chapter so we can pick up a little speed here. Now there arose in heaven Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even until death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opens his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. OK, so we've got this next section here with the dragon in Revelation 12, really starting in verse seven. That's really small. Anyway, the context of this passage I know when you read this, you might be thinking this gives me the history and the origin of the devil. I don't think that's the context of what John's saying. I think there are things true here that are true about the devil. But the Bible doesn't really give us a whole lot of detail about the whole. That's more Milton's Paradise Lost. The devil was up in heaven. He wanted to run the show. He got mad with God and God kicked him out. They are cast down. The angels are cast down. Second Peter two, four and Jude six. But this passage is not about the cosmic origin of the devil and his angels as much as it's about the heavenly conflict with this dragon that's persecuting the woman. That's what John zeroing in on here. And I think that's where we need to keep the attention. So there is conflict. There's a war in heaven between Michael and his angels and the dragon. Who loses the battle in heaven? The dragon. Yes, Satan loses. He loses the fight. And this is just saying his plans won't overcome God's plan. Michael is one of only two, one of two angels that are named in the Bible. There's Michael. And who's the other one? Gabriel. Michael is mentioned in Jude nine and several times in the book of Daniel. He's called the what kind of angel? Michael, the what angel? Archangel. What does that mean? 
the chief angel. And here it says Michael and his angels. So he's kind of the leader of this host. I don't know what that's all about, but there is a battle. He wins. The devil is cast out. OK, let's see what we got next. All right. What do we learn from the devil's defeat in heaven in this heavenly battle? What does this teach us about God? He will be victorious. But what does it teach us about the devil? I know this is painfully small. I thought we were going to be in the other class. It would have been better, but sorry. Okay. What else? What do we learn about the devil from this battle? He's a powerful enemy, Russell says. Yeah, more about, what was that? His powers are limited. limited. Yeah. He can be what? What happens to him here? He can be what? Defeated. Not only can he be defeated, there's a sense in which he what? He already is, right? Yeah, so he can be defeated. Yeah, I don't think so, because stars are often used about like God's people in the Bible. And this whole third is used throughout the book of Revelation to talk about a specific like God didn't destroy a third of the earth or something like that. But again, it could be. But I just think that whole section, sun, moon, stars, is metaphorical language to talk about the majesty of this woman. The stars, though, I don't think it refers to the devil and his angels. All of that is about the good things and the brightness of this woman. At least that's how I see it. Right, right. Go ahead. Yeah, I think John goes up. So that's a good question. So the idea of what we sing, no tears in heaven, no sorrows given. We sing that because that's what the Bible teaches. Right. First Peter one, three through five. Peter says heaven, the reward laid up for us, he says, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fades not away. It's reserved in heaven. Revelation 7, 16 and 17, John says about the redeemed and Revelation 21 would go with this as well. No sorrow, no tears and all this. This section, and I was thinking about other reasons before, but it applies to some of what's already been said. We've got to be careful in the book of Revelation of pressing the details too far. They stand for something, but we can't bleed them over into everything. So John is using some highly intense metaphorical language, but I wouldn't take this to mean that there will be war in heaven or breaking out. Furthermore, the devil, like you said, the dragon's been cast out. When we get there, there won't be any war. Whatever you make of Revelation 12, it will cease by the time we get there. So we shouldn't think when we get there, you know, there's going to be this heavenly feast and somebody's going to flip out because nobody passed them the cornbread and there's going to be a war in heaven. It's not going to happen like that. There won't be any there won't be any conflict in that regard. When we get to heaven, there won't be any battle or strife in that sense. So we just shouldn't push the details. It's a great question, but let's just be careful not to push the details too far because the New Testament portrays our arrival into heaven as really. And this is the cool thing about heaven. As far as the Bible is concerned, it speaks far more about what won't be there than what will be there. And there's a lot of negatives. No more of this. No more of that. No more of this. And one of those things is strife, calamity, war, things that bring about tears. So this battle is actually to ensure, in part, that when we get there, we won't have to worry about things like this. As far as. No, because in this text, Christ is already caught up into heaven. You see that in verse five. So if we're going chronologically, he wants to devour the child. The child's caught up into heaven because that's the case. He goes up there and there's kind of like a war after this, like he's still trying to pursue the child. After the ascension, there wasn't the crucifixion was first and then the ascension. Yeah, that's when he went up. So in the transfiguration, it's like heaven comes down to him. Yeah. Again, let's not press the details too far. Okay, that's all I want to say. John saying some things about the cosmic battle taking place, but we don't have to necessarily try to pinpoint these things. If you're suffering in the first century, I'm not undermining our comments. I think they're great. You're really not having this conversation as much as you're saying, 
our enemy is a loser. And that's what I really need to know. I really don't need to know all of the what's and details. And I, I think some of that's good. Let's dig into that. But more than anything, what we need to see, he's a loser. He can be overcome. He couldn't destroy the child. And the same child that was caught up in heaven will catch us up there. And we won't have to worry about his persecution anymore. All right. So anyway, here's what the Bible says about the devil here. Um, all these words are used. He's a great dragon. And by the way, I don't want to kill your curiosity. I just don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. OK, let's just keep that in mind whenever we study the Bible. But the great dragon, he's an ancient serpent. He's called the devil, a slanderer, the deceiver of the whole world. And he's an accuser of the brethren. So that's the description of him that you find in Revelation 12, 9 and 10. I was studying this this week and I thought as I was reading this description, you know, it'd be pretty interesting to read through this description of the devil and then examine your own life and start asking yourself, like, am I like the devil? Just think about some of the things it says about him. He's a slanderer. What does that mean? What was that? Speaks evil. An accuser of the brethren. What do you think that's about? Continuing to bring up our charges before God and all this stuff. It's interesting how many times in the Bible Jesus calls human beings the devil. So, Peter, on this rock I built my church. That's right. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Son of man's going to go up and be crucified, Matthew 16, 21. And Peter says, never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me who? Satan. Satan. John 6, will you also go away? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus says, that's right. Haven't I chosen you 12? And one of you, he's talking about Judas, is a what? It's a devil. And you just read about what the devil does. And I think we should search our own hearts and say, I hope I'm not like him. I hope I'm not somebody that continuously brings up people's missteps. You meet somebody, hey, that was the nicest person. Oh, yeah, but she wasn't always like that. Let me tell you, I knew her for a long time. That's an accuser of the brethren. That's somebody who wants to listen. John starts off talking about war. But as you progress through Revelation 12, he moves into a courtroom scene where the devil is a terrible attorney who wants to try to convict people on charges they've already been acquitted of. And we shouldn't be the person that he can call to the witness stand in his favor to say, this person's on my side. They see it exactly the way I do. That's an enemy. That's an adversary. That shouldn't be us as the people of God. Um, who had, Darryl, you had something. Go ahead. At some point, yes. For sure. Uh, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's fine. We can talk about it. So the devil was in heaven at some point. And our theology of the devil's got to be sound. There are some other things the Bible tells us about the devil. He's a lion. He's a strong man. He's an evil person. And 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 talks about angels. And you can include the devil in this, leaving their former habitation and being cast down. And so I think what we're going to find is something far more positive, though. But let me let me work there. The devil and his angels were in heaven. They got kicked out. True or false? True. All right. Now they're cast down. Hell's been prepared for them. God never meant it for us. Matthew 25, 41 says hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. There we go. So then we say, well, man, what about us when we get to heaven? Will we still have choices where we still have free will? But listen to Paul in First Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. We'll still possess our free will. But God's going to work out things in such a way that our faithfulness will no longer be on trial. And we should see it from the reverse. The angels sinned. They were cast out into hell. No scheme of redemption for them. No wonder the devil wants to destroy us. We sin. God started heading toward Calvary. More than that, though, when you get to heaven, you'll never be asked to leave. Jesus left twice for us or will leave twice. First to come here, the second time to get us. The angels are kicked out and cast out. But when you get there, 
the doors will never swing ajar again because you won't leave. We will always be with the Lord. So I don't think we should view it from the standpoint of what happened to them can happen to us. There will be an eternal security that we will possess in that era and in that moment that will enable us from reversing our circumstances because we'll always want to serve God. And we will. We will do that. And so I know that's hard for us to fathom now, but it's just our reality. And the Bible doesn't say when you get to heaven, there's a chance that you could stumble again and be cast out. When we get there and hear well done, it will be done. It'll be finished. And that's great news for us. Russell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a great point. The the fuel behind our temptation and our sin, as Russell mentioned, will be removed, which is the devil and temptation, all of that. So we won't have to worry about it anymore. The devil won't be there and neither will be any propensity on our part to sin. All right. Well, we were going to say more and we were going to do the quiz. But the Exodus people, y'all skipped out. Some of y'all are very happy. But we'll do the quiz next week. Before we close, any final questions? We'll just stop there for now. And um We'll do the quiz next week and pick up here. Just remember, I'll keep them in my office, yeah. Revelation 12, and we'll finish this chapter next week. The devil is persecuting the people of God. He persecutes the child first. The child is caught up and rescued. And the rest of Revelation 12, what John says is God is protecting this woman and her offspring. The enemy couldn't destroy the woman. He can't win the battle in heaven. And Revelation 12:11, he can't defeat the Christians. They overcome him three steps. Word of their testimony, the blood of the lamb, and they love not their lives unto death. This chapter is not about us being frantic about what the devil might do to us, losing our heavenly reward, where the devil came from and his origins, though some of that might be included peripherally here. It's really about the victory of the people of God before their most ardent foe, and God's ensuring that. And you as a Christian have nothing to worry about and take great confidence in that. All right, thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for the comments and the discussion.